Welcome to the Talent Talk with Robert Walters podcast, where we speak to business leaders around the globe to bring you the latest trends and insights from the world of work. Hello and welcome to Talent Talks with Robert Walters. I'm Andy McLean, a journalist and podcaster based in Sydney, Australia. And in this podcast mini-series, we're exploring what diversity, inclusion and equity really means for employers and employees. We're going beyond the slogans and behind the scenes to reveal the real benefits, challenges and solutions in hiring and retaining a diverse workforce. Along the way, you'll hear voices and ideas from a whole range of backgrounds. And in today's episode, I'm particularly delighted to be joined by Sinead Hurrigan and Troy Roderick. Sinead has led Robert Walter's Queensland business for more than 17 years, and she was recently appointed Global Head of Customer Experience at Robert Walter's. Throughout her career, Sinead has been a strong advocate for gender diversity and was the first female president of the RCSA, Australia's peak body for the employment services sector. Troy has specialised in diversity and inclusion for more than 20 years and he's twice been named among the top 50 diversity professionals in industry in the Global Diversity List, supported by The Economist. His expertise have been sought out by a range of organisations, including the Male Champions of Change Institute, the Australian HR Institute and the Australian Human Rights Commission. In this episode, the three of us tackle gender diversity in the workplace, and we're not going to sugarcoat this. This is a topic that's been discussed and argued over for decades, yet progress in many areas remains stubbornly slow. A quick glance at remuneration data shows numerous companies and industries still have a gender pay gap. Glance at any newspaper and we still see headlines about sexual harassment in Australian workplaces. Or simply take a look at executive tables. In top ASX 200 companies, there are still more chief executives named John than there are female CEOs put together. And the same goes for Peters. So, we need to talk and we need to act. How? Well, that's what we're going to cover in this episode. To set the scene, the first question I put to our experts was simply this. What does gender diversity mean to you? In the context of the workplace, gender diversity means to me that all people are welcome and that everyone is equally able to access opportunities and support. I kind of also think that diversity means a workplace should reflect our customer base, you know, so I think we have to keep those things in mind. And I also think that fairness and equity in the context of diversity should be baked in so that we can stop talking about gender diversity and probably talk about diversity more in the context of thought, experience and capability. So it just becomes less of an issue. Now about you, Troy, if I, if I throw the expression gender diversity to you, what comes to mind? Well, for, for me, Andy, I mean, my, my starting point is sort of where Sinead ended. So it's a really neat segue, actually. So for me, when I hear um, gender diversity or any other kind of diversity, I think of all of the ways, all of the visible and invisible ways in which people are different from each other. And those dimensions of difference are never one-dimensional and always intersecting. 
Then when I think about gender diversity, well, of course, everybody has a gender, right? So this looks at um, difference and uniqueness and variety through that lens of gender, whether it's gender identity or gender expression or gender norms or discrimination that people face because of those things or the opportunities they get because of or in spite of those things. And then when we talk about gender diversity in its practical sense, and Sinead talked about some of these things, we talk about balance and equality, and the focus ends up being on women, um, which then tends to be, you know, consciously or unconsciously interpreted as somehow being a generic group, you know, women. Um, but, of course, then going back all the way back to the start of what I was saying, women themselves are a diverse group. So this is where the intersectionality is so important and why the issues that we deal with in workplaces and in communities and in nations, you know, and the world, are, they're complex issues, you know. They're, they're, we like to have simple and practical solutions for them and there are some really good ones out there, but these issues are complex and um, require deep consideration and multifaceted approaches to solving them. Absolutely, Troy. I couldn't agree more. And and if I think about uh, multifaceted approach and what that phrase means in my mind, it also means that everyone has to contribute to achieve diversity. And in the case of this episode, of course, that's gender diversity. So I did just want to call out, I suppose, what might be a possible elephant in the room. We're here today discussing female underrepresentation in the workforce. And here we are, two men and one woman. Uh, the point I guess I just want to emphasise is this. This is not a female issue. This is an issue for all of us. Men need to talk about gender diversity, not exclusively, of course, but men need to talk, listen and act to bring about change. We've all got to play a role in this. Uh, and to sum up the task in front of us collectively, here's a recent quote about Australia from Bloomberg. It's the Australian paradox. In terms of women's educational attainment, no country does better, according to the World Economic Forum. But when it comes to women's participation in the economy, Australia ranks 70th on the World Economic Forum's list, behind Kazakhstan, Serbia and Zimbabwe. That really just shows us how far we still have to go in Australia to achieve gender parity. Um, Sinead, what's your initial response to what I've just outlined there? To, to go back to your elephant in the room uh, quote, I think what we have to do first is recognise that in recent times in Australia, we have had a number of reports that have been well publicised about severely uninclusive environments, whether that's our Australian government, the House of Power, having to come out and apologise for the behaviours, harassment, abuse, whatever else happening in that environment, whether it's some of our largest corporates that have had to come out and talk about um, some of the sexual assault and harassment that has been experienced in their work sites, um, we have a ways to go. And um, that doesn't take away from the fact that I think there are thousands of exceptional employers around this country who are doing everything they can to create inclusive environments. But I think what it means is, and this is my experience, it means that you have to think about diversity and inclusion as a lens on every single de decision that you make in a business. So it has to cover simple things like 
how you set team meetings and times for specific engagements to make sure that that's not automatically excluding people who have caring responsibilities. It goes to the way in which you resource manage projects to ensure that there's room in those projects for people who have part-time roles and therefore still giving them the opportunity to access great work and not excluding them from you know, those things that will advance their careers. I think it goes to things like how we set the parameters and for growth and succession opportunities and ensuring that presenteeism is not something that is given consideration over people who work just as hard, but maybe in condensed environments. So it has to be everything. It has to be every time you stop to make a decision, you have to stop and run that diversity and inclusion lens over it and make sure that it's being considered at every step along the journey. Yes, yes. I, I really like uh, and endorse the, the comments about like infusing inclusion into every decision that's made. We know that the, the three elements of inclusion, so creating a, creating a sense of belonging for people, sort of grounded in, in all of the original EEO and anti-discrimination work, valuing individuals' uniqueness, um, which goes back to the comments on diversity, like genuinely valuing people because they're different. What, what do I hear? Sometimes I hear organisations, people in organisations say, we value all our people regardless of their race, gender, background, et cetera, et cetera, um, when actually they should be saying that people are valued because of those things. So generally valuing uniqueness. And, of course, creating an environment of psychological safety where people can bring all of themselves, their best selves, to the table or to work and know that the environment that they're working in is, in is one that encourages innovation and new ideas and failing fast and all that kind of stuff. So when you're trying to create the, those sorts of environments, the thing that leaders and other people need to remember is that inclusion only happens as a result of an intention to be inclusive, right? So diversity exists regardless of what we do. The mix is the thing we need to, we need to act on, but diversity exists. Inclusion does not happen unless you do it, unless you decide to intentionally be inclusive. So this understanding that inclusive environments are the result of people making inclusive decisions and taking inclusive actions, one decision and one action at a time. And that's why we all can do this every day in the way that we interact with each other, the way we, we lead teams. If we're human resources people and we're setting up systems and structures and policies and such, we can do this as well. So it's a huge amount of opportunity for people to, um, you know, to look for those, those daily moments where, um, where they can be inclusive. Sinead, there are obviously a number of different ways in which organisations can proactively manage this, and, and Troy's just called some of them out. Your background is in the recruitment space. I just wondered if you could perhaps describe how you think recruitment can contribute to greater gender equity in the Australian workforce. Wow, um, absolutely, Andy. Uh, I think... In fact, to answer that question, I'm going to tell you a bit of a story that I read last week, um, which was based in the US, but it goes some way to explaining what a recruiter can do on an individual basis to change the world for people in a very simplistic way. And to Troy's point earlier, one step at a time, there was... Um, 
a big um, viral sensation last week when a recruiter in the US posted something on, on their social media, basically saying, I had this candidate apply for a role. They really undervalued themselves, but I just didn't correct them because it's not my job to give people advice about what they're worth in the market. And social media blew up, blew up. Um, I, I ended up feeling somewhat sorry for the person because they, I'm sure, did not intend to, to get the level of vitriol and, and whatnot that they received. But but actually, the thing that I took away from it all was it's everybody's responsibility to ensure that people are getting paid what they're worth for the job that they're doing. And it's a really simple trap to fall into um, to talk to people about what they think a role is worth and what they personally think they're worth. And I can guarantee you, um, and there's plenty of data to support this, that people who come from uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds and people who come from um, uh, different culture and ethnicity backgrounds to the norm and, and women will always undervalue themselves in the context of remuneration. Um, and it's actually everybody's obligation to correct that. So a role is worth what a role is worth. And everyone has a role to play in ensuring that when you put people into those environments, you put them in on an equal standing. And you know, to that point, in a very simplistic way, we can go all the way back to graduate level. Um, there is still data coming out. In fact, the 2020 research that came out recently to show that graduates in the same disciplines are being paid at different levels based on their gender, up to 12% difference between a male graduate and a female graduate entering the workforce at the same time to do the same job. Those things are fixable. And recruiters have a role to play in being able to support organizations in getting that right. There's a heap of other things as well. Like I certainly would comment on, there's been a lot of work done, I think, in the last number of years about um, removing a gender bias to ensure that unintentional bias isn't seeping through. Um, so I think there's, there's, you know, really easy solutions that people, people can focus on in certain areas that will help. But I think open and honest conversations are, are the most important thing. Troy, I'd like to just talk a little bit about career progression too. We hear a lot about the glass ceiling and how men are overrepresented in senior roles in organisations. What can employers do and other decision makers to tap into female leadership talent? Um, there's lots of things people can do from within organisations. I also wonder about the role of boards. Um, because, you know, boards are the people who choose CEOs, are they not, um, on the advice of others? And, you know, I wonder, what, I wonder whether boards are asking um, the people who are taking care of CEO succession in, or, you know, in particularly in large organisations, whether or not um, there is a gender-balanced succession plan for critical roles inside the company. You know, why should it be? that the CEO is always a, essentially a carbon copy of the person who came before, and I'll say him because it's mostly him, um, you know, out of the same kind of background, out of the same sort of role, like what, what sort of thinking or um, consideration of the valuable, valuable diversity that's required to bring innovation to the most senior jobs in organisations? Like where is the thinking about why that always seems to sort of end up with the same kind of, I don't know, parade of people who are very similar to each other? Um, I wonder why that is the case and why boards aren't 
demanding more um, more diversity in the slates that they're looking at. Um, but that, of course, also depends on the pipeline of talent that's coming through middle and, you know, just below C-suite level. And there's many, many things that organisations can do to set themselves up for success in this area. One of the main things, first of all, is to use data to guide decisions about, about the work that's happening in diversity, all kinds of diversity, but particularly gender diversity. Collect the data, then spend lots of time analysing and using it to guide action and, to, and, and your plans. And so I talk about data around representation, recruitment, promotions, exits, all of those things. The other thing, the, the other things that can happen, and Sinead talked to some of these around, um, you know, bias and recruitment. So what are the norms that are at play around how people get experience and exposure inside your organisation? And what is your approach to things like sponsorship? So we know, for example, that women are very heavily mentored. There's lots of mentoring that happens for women. Um, and that's really good. You know, mentoring is giving someone your knowledge and, and sharing the things that you know with someone who might be earlier in their career or younger than you um, or both. But sponsorship is the thing that men seem to do naturally enough for each other without even asking, without even being prompted. And women seem to miss out on that. They seem to miss out on the person saying, she'd be really excellent in this next opportunity or she'd be really great in this temporary extension opportunity over here. Or have you, have you heard about this new person in my team who's really excellent at X, Y, Z skill. The blokes do that for each other, like I said, without even being asked. It's natural. You see it happening. But somehow women are left out of that and other diverse, other, you know, underrepresented groups as well. I sort of do this exercise with leaders where I ask them to, to think about their trusted 10, the 10 people who they're closest to, the 10 people that they bring into their confidence, um, write their names down the left-hand side of a page, and then... As you go to the right-hand side of the page, you might say, all right, well, tell me about the genders of those people. Tell me about the cultural backgrounds of those people. Tell me about the ages of those people. All the, all the different aspects of diversity that you might consider. And quite often what we find is that the trusted 10 are very similar in almost all of those respects as each other and as the person for whom they're the trusted 10. So um, if that's what's happening inside organisations, if I'm only giving opportunities, experience and exposure to the people that are close to me or that I know, and those people all like me, then what chance does someone who isn't in that group have of um, advancement um, or experience? Now, I realise that's a really long answer, but it's kind of a like a complex um, dynamic uh, that, again, you need to spend time and intentional effort to actually counter. I think sponsorship is a huge opportunity for organisations and people. It's interesting, actually, you used the word sponsorship. I was talking the other day with an arts organisation sponsored by Robert Walters, which is Adelaide Fringe, and I was talking oh. to the chief executive. And what was very interesting about that conversation was that there's an organisation which actually has a pretty good record on diversity, right? She wasn't happy with that. She was like, we've still got further to go. But the thing that really struck me to the point you've just made there, Troy, is that she was really aware of how the organization was performing on diversity. She was happy to be transparent and accountable about where they were at the moment. And that's all linked to what you're talking about, right? You need the data and you need to be prepared to spend the time looking at that in order to be able to hold a mirror up to the organization to see how you're going. Yes, it's the next thing that I, I should have said, which is, you know, using using the, the data as your base, you know, to work out what your baseline is and then to set some ambitious targets for improvement I and mean, we have targets for everything else 
you know, every organization you talk to has financial targets and production targets or whatever, you know, whatever their business is about, what targets they routinely report on them. People are held to account for their achievement of those targets or not. Sometimes people leave the organization if they're not doing well on their targets and that's not necessarily voluntary leaving. Um, so, you know, so people are very routinely held to account in terms of their achievement of things. I mean, as, as we now know, because of the excellent work um, the Bankwest, Bankwest Curtin Economics Centre and the Workplace Gender Equality Agency releasing a report, I think it was in 2020, that finally showed the causal link between gender-balanced leadership and financial outcomes for business. So there's no longer a debate about this. There's a causal link, not just a correlation, but a causal link. Then if you're not, if you're a leader in an organisation or someone who's leading teams in an organisation and you're not doing everything you can to ensure that gender diversity exists and can thrive there, then to my mind, you're not operating or working in the best interests of the organisation and its objectives. And therefore, you know, that should, have, that should carry the same level of risk and reward as any other, meaning any other target would do because now these things are all linked. And if you, you know, like I said, if you're not achieving your, your results around gender equality, then you're not, you're not acting in the best interests of the organisation. Some leaders are being courageous enough to start having those conversations now. I hear more and more leaders, particularly at CEO level, having those conversations with their direct reports. Um, but it would be, be, of course, wonderful if more did. Mm, I think the market increasingly will demand that they do because diversity, of course, is part of the wider ESG, environmental, social and governance picture. And mm -hmm. investors increasingly and shareholders are demanding that organisations do disclose their performance in areas of diversity and set targets and report back on those. Uh, Sinead, I, I might just turn to you just to talk a little bit about how sort of gender diversity in the workplace has become challenged further by the COVID-19 pandemic. There's been a few reports in the media about this. I just wondered what you've observed. The primary thing that we have seen at all levels, in every role, in every environment that we recruit in, everyone forgot that once a woman goes back into their home, they pick up all of the work that sits in their home, as well as the work that they're trying to do every day. And there was a significant impact on female employees trying to balance those two lives that were sometimes coming into direct conflict on a day-to-day -day basis. And adding in homeschooling on top of that was just a recipe for, in many cases, disaster, to be perfectly honest. And it's only recently, and you're absolutely right, Andy, there's been quite a number of reports about that challenge that workers are now facing, who are absolutely loving having that layer of flexibility that in a lot of instances people thought they would never get but the capacity to be able to then self-correct around that responsibility, that opportunity, and then being able to balance out um, how much home time that really means and how to shut both down at the right moments and the challenges that that brings. And Sinead, if we were to imagine a more gender equal future in the workplace, what would be the aspiration for you? What would it look like if we were doing well in an organisation at that? Look, I think in a, you know, in a really simplistic way, it would basically look like 
people being given the opportunity to make the decisions that work for them. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but I think about this in the context of some of our own very localized experiences. I had a number of workers in my own environment who were supremely challenged by the thought of having to work from home for a myriad of reasons. They were uncomfortable in their environments. Some of them had, um, you know, share house contacts. Some of them had poor connectivity at home from an IT infrastructure perspective, a myriad of different things that meant that for them, actually five days a week in the office was huge preference. And, and they would feel particularly uncomfortable about the thought that they would be asked or, or in fact directed to spend time at home instead of in their work context. So those people need to be given consideration, just as the people who have said, you know, actually the job that I do, I can absolutely function and I've demonstrated that I can, that also needs to be given consideration and the support needs to be provided to those people. So for me, it's about equal decision-making for all. I was talking to someone recently who was telling me they were very proud of themselves because they had implemented a flexible work policy, which meant that everyone in the office had to work from home one day a week. And I said to myself, I was like, that, that doesn't sound very flexible to me. And it doesn't sound like something that supports everybody in what they want to do. Um, and it was done, I have no doubt, with the greatest of intentions. But sometimes those things have unintended consequences. So it is about, you know, being open with our employees and showing people that actually we think that they are capable to make the right decisions um, in the context of our workforce and our business community and our clients and people who rely on us, but we should, you know, give people a chance to make decisions that, that work for them. It's interesting you say this. Again, I, another conversation I was having with somebody at Robert Walters the other day, Michelle Christie, the South Australia uh, manager, and she was talking, just by way of example, about how there was a discussion amongst the staff of let's have, a, let's have Friday drinks. And Michelle then stopped for a moment and thought, hang on, if we're flexible, we've got probably half our workforce don't work Fridays. So totally with, with, the, with the best intentions possible, they would have inadvertently excluded half of the half of the team. So, uh, you know, they picked that, that issue up and they were able to, to resolve it in another way. But it's that sort of flexibility that you're talking about, isn't it? And anticipating Absolutely. the needs of different people with different you know, backgrounds yeah. and, and circumstances. Exactly. And embracing it all. And to Troy's point earlier, which I loved, I've never really thought about it when he made the comment about, you know, we embrace everyone regardless of their background. It's such a valid point because, in fact, we should be embracing people because of it. And we should be joyous to have a workforce that looks and feels so different because if our workforce looks and feels different, it is absolutely more reflective of our customer base. And if that's the case, then we will absolutely be more successful. It is that simple, and it is a causal link. That's such a great point, Sinead. I love that. I'm going to turn now to Troy. I'm interested, Troy. We've called out earlier that men are predominantly still the decision makers in so many Australian organisations. So let's address them directly. Like, What advice can we share with those men who are seeking to be part of the solution, those who are seeking to step up and really take action? You know, we're lucky in Australia because we've got some um, good examples of this. Uh, the, the group called Male Champions of Change, which has now been around for more than a decade, you know, formed with, formed with some CEOs of male CEOs of big companies and a couple of big government departments, um, have been working on 
how it is that um, male leaders are given the opportunity and take accountability for the opportunity to listen, learn and lead with action. So advice includes information that goes to CEOs quite often gets quite a bit filtered um, by other people around them. But going into your organisation in an an unfiltered way, listening to the lived experience of women and other genders in your business. Find out what's going on. We We can perhaps accept that some CEOs who might not have been as exposed in detail to this issue might not, you know, there's, there's room to learn, right? So we can accept that, uh, I think, all of us on this, on this podcast. Um, and so, therefore, the, the next question is what do you do about that? Well, you take the time and use the structures around you to listen to your people and find out what's going on for them. Then take the opportunity, opportunity to learn more about the issues that we've been talking about Again, you know, we've got experience in this area. We can we could probably do a dozen podcasts talking about what we know, and that would be very enjoyable. But for others, they haven't had the, the benefit of being able to learn about this in their day job um, in the same way that we do. So um, CEOs taking the taking the, the time to learn more. And that is that is a responsibility that they themselves can discharge. Um, while it's important to listen to women, you know, women are not responsible for teaching CEOs how to be better leaders. Um, they can take that responsibility themselves. And then to, to use their positions of influence um, and their energy, uh, assuming they've learned something that makes them want to act, um, then, you know, using, using their energy to take action. And that can be, you know, doing things around, um, uh, like I said before, you know, setting targets, um, expecting your leaders to, to be accountable for change, those sorts of architectural things, but also being very clear about, you know, how they message this work into their organisations. Um, we've seen recently lots of attention paid, and very pleasingly so, to the issues of sexual harassment in workplaces. And those, those leaders who are stepping up and being very vocal about the kinds of environments that the kinds of workplaces that they want to lead, the kinds of behaviours they expect, the kinds of behaviours that won't be tolerated, for example, you know, that takes real leadership. And, you know, if I, if I talk about the Rio Tinto example, which, of course, is very live right now, they've done a, a lengthy cultural, cultural review, um, have been completely upfront about what that report said. They've made it public. Like, that's, that's kind of, that's astounding, astoundingly good that they've done that. Um, the things that, are happen- that, are, that the report says are happening inside the organisation are not good, of course, but to take the step of saying this is what's going on, we're going to tell the truth about this and we'll share it with everybody and now we'll, we li- we'd like others to follow us. Like they're very, very good things that leaders can do and, you know, that decision is made clearly, you know, with communications people involved um, but also you know, from the leadership team who who say, we're going to do this. So listening, learning and leading. And I think also continuing to prosecute the case. So there'll be quite often, and there's a certain amount of backlash that can occur. So advice would be to stay the course. This is hard work. People still describe it as sort of soft, soft work. It requires soft skills. It's actually difficult. A difficult work to do. So that requires a consistency of stewardship and, an, and a willingness to stay the course on issues like this. And, you know, that, again, takes a special kind of leader who can show continued commitment over time. 
So Sinead, would you describe yourself as optimistic about the prospects for greater gender equity in the Australian workforce in the sec, let's say the next five to 10 years? Yes, is the short answer, Andy. And I say that because I am by nature an optimist, but also uh, to some of the things we've talked about today, when you think about some of the things that have happened in recent times in Australia, I think there is a general consensus that enough talking has happened and it is time for action. And not only because it's the right thing to do, but also to Troy's point earlier, the causal link between effective action and success is a significant one that we can't ignore, but also the links between happier workforces, more productive workforces and better communities. And there's an awful lot of benefits to us getting this right, but there's an awful lot of systemic things that need to happen. And, you know, from my perspective, I think there's a whole world of review that needs to happen in the context of childcare, for example, um, to ensure that what people want to do can actually happen. It's all very well for leaders and CEOs to want to be more inclusive in their workforces and to attract women to their leadership tables and so forth. But if there are structural issues within our society that are preventing those things from happen, happening, they just need to be addressed. They're not easy, to Troy's point. These are not easy things, but they're all doable. They're all things we can solve together. But I also think, aside from any of that, there is a real consensus from leaders that I speak to across a multitude of different sectors that they all appreciate that it is the right thing to do and that they can do it. And there are simple things that I've seen organizations do already, and that could be simple wage audits on an annualized basis, reviews of their leadership structures. To Troy's point earlier, that promotion reviews, what happened? How did we manage that? How did we advertise those roles? What are we doing about this? If leaders can really embed themselves in thinking about all of the lenses, like I talked to earlier, that impact on their organizations being as good as they can be, then they will affect change. And it's just about a momentum build. And, you know, and that's all we need to see. And I do think, I think it's ripe now. I think people want to talk about it and I think people want to see action. So I am very hopeful about the future. That's really encouraging to hear. Troy, um, any sort of closing comments from you? Are you feeling optimistic too? Yes, I am. <laughs> I am <laughs> feeling optimistic um, for a number of reasons. One is because I think um, leadership is changing. Like you can see that, the, and not only because generational change is occurring, but even those leaders who are, you know, later in their careers are, are definitely waking up um, and realising, as Sinead suggested, all of the reasons to why this work is important to their organisations. Uh, investors, of course, customers, all interested in seeing things shift. Um, there's also, and, you know, Australia is not unique in the world, but I'm kind of watching it at the moment, of course, and there is a mood which is led by um, some prominent figures uh, in public discourse, mainly women, who are, who've had enough. You know, we've seen, there've been protests at Parliament House, right? All over the country. This is something, and I've been working in this space for, um, makes me sound old, um, really old, like about 30 years. And I can't recall quite a mood um, as this that was ignited earlier in 2021 in particular, and has sustained itself for now almost a year 
and will continue to do so, particularly as we head into an election period and the stakes are high. And that, that, that mood seems to be permeating almost everywhere. And I don't think that's just because I'm paying attention because I work in this space. I think it's everywhere. And you, you look at, you know, news media, the coverage is, is off the charts. And I think that is going to continue to drive expectations for action and almost an uncompromising expectation that change will occur. So, yes, that's why I'm optimistic. And I think younger women and younger men won't settle for anything less. The momentum is, is too great. Great stuff. It's time to seize the day, guys. Let's make it happen. Absolutely. Sinead, Troy, thank you so much for your time. It's been hugely enjoyable and also uh, really, really motivating, quite honestly. It's, it's encouraging to hear everything you've talked about. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and your practical advice. Thanks so much for the invitation, Andy. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Sinead. Thanks for listening to today's episode, which is part of Robert Walter's mini-series tackling diversity, inclusion and equity from numerous perspectives. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to our channel and listen to our other Talent Talks episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>